Welcome to episode 31 of On the Rocks with Joe Warren. The launch of the Oppenheimer movie this summer renewed interest in nuclear energy as the dawn of this awesome source of power was rediscovered by millions who watched the show. It was truly an amazing period in science and an inflection point for the world. My guest today, Fred Gardner, received his MS in radiological physics from Colorado State and developed programs for nuclear reactor design during his career. No one I know is more qualified to talk about the source of power and its potential to change the energy landscape worldwide. Fred is a radioactive personality and knows how to split atoms. It's my pleasure to tell his story. So anyways, I was telling you, Fred, that this, uh, this Richard Rhodes book, so when I was in college, I, I was studying political science and I had this book and I read about um, kind of the irony of how the nuclear, you know, fission, nuclear reaction, et cetera, came together, where the people, the, the scientists came from, what part of the world, um, and this guy did a great edition, yeah. so uh, something that you should look into. And the read. Manhattan Project was a massive effort. Well, one of our colleagues, Stuart, lives out, he lives out in New Mexico and he was out in that... Uh, he, he's got a lot of friends and contacts in that whole um, section uh, of the world that I, I don't really know what's going on out there anymore, but that was that was an entire town built. What was that in the 1930s or 40s for the, the Manhattan Project? Los Alamos. Was Among, yeah, there were there was uh, Los Alamos, Oak Ridge, and Hanford. The pre, three primary production sites were, you know, Occupied by the government, by the military, and they basically took over the entire area and built these huge factories to make weapons-grade uranium and plutonium, something yeah, yeah. to be used for a bomb. Well, that, that was the singular purpose. Parallel to that, they had to do a lot of research, so they built a lot of test facilities because they really didn't know what was going to work, so they tried all kinds of different things. So they overbuilt to beat the Nazis. Got it. Now, before I even get started, because we met at a club, um, and we're just chatting about kind of, you know, you and I talked about physics, and my knowledge, again, is somewhat limited, but I know enough to be interested. Um, you got a lot of interesting history, man. You got a lot of stuff going on. You're, you know, you have some woodworking capabilities. You obviously have nuclear knowledge. You're an avid golfer. Um, so, you know... Walk me through the upbringing of you, because you're a, a unique cat. I mean, not a lot of people have this many interests, and you seem to have uh, always be tinkering with something. But uh, matter of fact, I was somewhere in, uh, with a friend of yours on the island not so long ago, and they said they came to your garage, and you showed them some uranium, I think, or some some, some sort of yeah. radioactive material that was in a jar in the garage. Yeah. <laughs> I got some uranium ore in the garage. Yeah, a couple of Geiger counters. I should have brought them. But as a kid, were you just, was your family like science, or what was the yeah. upbringing? Well, in the 1950s, you know, the science world was, uh, was, you know, on the cover of all the magazines. They put Oppenheimer on the cover of Time, Popular Mechanics, Popular Science, you know, everybody was shooting rockets into space and, you know, building, you know, reactors and energy too cheap to meter and all that stuff. So science had a big impact on me. You know, there were a lot of cool TV shows uh, about science. And uh, it just fascinated me. I thought it was great. And, um, you know, Dad was a mechanical engineer, real smart guy, built engines and, you know, automobile parts and stuff like that. You know, when I was a young kid, he gave me an old bomb site to take apart. Now, those were highly classified, <laughs> you know, Air Force bomb sites used in World War II to, you know, 
They had gyroscopes and all kinds of cool little relays and stuff. So he gave me a screwdriver, a pair of pliers, and a bomb sight. He said, here, figure out how this works. Oh, so wow. was kind of fun. Stuff like that. So my, my background was involved in you know, a lot of mechanical stuff, car engines, you know, rebuilding lawnmowers, fixing stuff. So I always like to tinker with all that stuff. Yeah. And do you have siblings that were in the, I mean, I don't know much about your sister. Yeah. yeah. She didn't take up with all that stuff. So. Different, different path. Yeah. Yeah. She got into child, psych, child rearing, basically. Got it. Um, now, I, uh, my family's all in medicine and physics and, you know, yeah. and all those things. And I, my father and brother, both like physicians and organic chemistry was, was what got me. I was on the path and then I took <laughs> organic in college and I think I got a C and dad's like probably ought to I got to PCAM. Find yeah, another yeah. profession for a friend and I was like, good idea, good idea. The Fourier transformation lost me. I, I couldn't grasp it. But were you always just, was science easy for you? Yeah, math was easy, geometry, no problem. You know, the integrals were a little tougher. Thank God for computers. You know, when the HP 35 calculator came out, it was a miracle. You know, you could you could dump the slide rule and go to punch and buttons. That was a big deal. Yeah, 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 yeah. I saw that happen right in front of me. It was great. Hmm. And so I looked a bit on your in your resume and history on online today, but I mean, in the last ten or fifteen years, you've been mostly in nuclear reaction waste and things like well, that. Well, I got into nuclear waste and cleanup work at the uh, end of my career, mostly by supplying health physicists and people and, and nuclear engineers to the projects that did that kind of work for the government mostly. And uh, you know, there were some huge facilities that were built during the Manhattan Project. And uh, you know, after 40 or 50 years, we had to take them apart because they were falling down. And it was a massive project that cost, uh, well, the budget for that was around eight to 10 billion a year. And it was pretty steady for you know a long time. Yeah. How, how was the... Um... And I've just, um, this is on my mind, and we'll probably come back to this a little bit later, but that like 1890s to 1930 period of science and knowledge and the, I guess, the, the age of physics and things like that, right. I mean, were you, were you, was that kind of in your education? As you, I think you went through Colorado State. And had oh, some, yeah. yeah uh, um, was that transformed into the university system that quickly and like education from that came that fast? Oh, my, my goodness. The Atomic Energy Commission was formed to promote the safe and beneficial use of atomic energy. That was its purpose. So they had the promoter guys, the research guys, and the regulation guys, and everybody was in the same house, and they all were pointed in the same direction. Disseminate nuclear know-how throughout the world so people know how to handle it safely. And, uh, oh, by the way, and we know where it all is. You know, keep track of it. And it was yeah. a great program, so they distributed training reactors to hundreds of schools and universities around the world, including Korea, one of which is still sitting in, I believe, Poyang, North Korea. That's ours. They transformed it into a plutonium production reactor. India used their training reactors that we gave them to develop atomic energy stuff and atomic weapons. So, uh, so did Pakistan, you know. But a lot of people, uh, you know, thought that was pretty dumb, but at least we know where it is. <laughs> but it got to all the universities throughout the world, and you know, hundreds of people learned how to use this technology. And at that point, we started building a lot of nuclear facilities, power reactors. What 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 decade are we talking about when you're talking about that? Is this the 50s, maybe? Oh, this is in the 60s and 60s, 70s. Yeah, yeah, right after. In the 1950s, the Atomic Energy Commission was formed, and that was the vehicle that disseminated all of this nuclear know-how throughout the world. 
Got it. Dwight Eisenhower said, let's do it. As I mentioned, I just was reading this book, uh, The Making of the Atomic Bomb, and it seemed like there was a good collaboration between scientists, I would say, like the 1890s through about 1920. I was think, looking at Rutherford, I guess, who kind of dissected the nucleus, uh, and then there was people that, uh, and I think who was it, Chadwick, that uh, figured out the neutron and how it had no electrical charge to be able to bombard nuclei, nuclei and all that. But it seemed like uh, information in science in that period, prior to, I guess, political issues, was being shared pretty easily amongst the community. And Before I, World War II, the, the physics community was centered in Amsterdam and Germany and, and Italy, but there were you know, some very, very uh, smart guys dissecting the atom at that point. And they were all, you're right, they were all sharing the information openly. I, I just, I wonder about that environment and that vibe and that time, like, I don't feel like that's done in science now across the world today, but maybe maybe it was just a different era. I just don't know. I, I, I don't know either. I'm, I haven't been in there in a while. I know. I was just thinking <laughs> I about... Know that the, the, the security and, and controls imposed by the government are extremely, extremely strict compared to what... I mean, there were none in that era at all. Everybody talked openly about the brand new science of this stuff. It's like the AI debate now, in my opinion. You know, here's this new technology can be used for great good. It can, it, it, we don't know how it's going to be used, but it's powerful. Now, what are we going to do to manage it? That was the that was the vibe back in the at the turn of the century. You know, well, we stripping I just, away the atom. I just got done reading this Codebreaker book by Walter Isaacson. It's actually a few years yeah. old now, but it talks about how the, the vaccine became yeah. so quick. Um, and you know, now you can have mRNA instruct DNA to do just about anything. Um, and who controls that technology? And that's the debate amongst the science world now. Is like you want to edit out a certain skin type or you know hair well, color. That's a good example. Uh, that technology was shared openly. It, it has been, but now there's discovery. But who gets now to the use and in, in the mechanics of how they commercialize it, you know, and weaponize it, you know, all that stuff is being carefully controlled. Yeah, but it's that. You're, and you're right. The same with the AI. Those are the big things. On I mean, you know, the origin of man and how you can create species is now an open dialogue. And who I don't know where that goes, but it's a big deal. And it you know kind of like this in the in, in the 1920s and 30s. Um, and of course, your the AI situation is TBD as well. Every every new technology has a gestation period of you know, a decade or two, a few generations. For it to be absorbed and understood and used, and you know how it evolves in the hands of humans, it doesn't happen immediately. You know, if a new discovery takes a long time to get you know implemented yeah, yeah. fully, and you know in inside our society. So this this whole AI stuff is brand new. Well, one of the concepts of morality and ethics, and I think some of the things I wrote about the scientists that were you know integral in the creation nuclear power was the they foresaw the potential harm or I may be the good because the harm could be so intense from the power that could be generated but that I mean how do you handle that personally yourself I mean there's an argument that says these bombs were dropped so they'll never be dropped again um, well I went, when I first saw the atomic cannon fire a uh, 10 kiloton shell across the Nevada desert and then blow up in a nice big mushroom cloud and then a bunch of army guys head to the ground zero to prove that we could, you know, march through a weapon that had just been detonated. You know, I thought, I want to be on the firing end of this deal, <laughs> not on the receiving end. <laughs> so I got into it. <laughs> I thought, let's go. 
I was very lucky, you know, that, that there was so much uh, money going into education at all the universities, and they were developing all kinds of new designs. I was lucky to get in, and I did. The 70s were very fruitful. I guess it was just kind of, kind of the concept. It's common either way, so either be part of it or be... Well, yeah. You, what side of this do you want to be on? I want to understand it and at least know how to manage it. You know? Yeah. I became a safety guy for that reason. The argument that this power is out there and it's not been used since it's almost been 100 years now, I guess is, uh, is a, it could be argued as the reason why the power was created in the first place, but, you know, there's a lot of... People have an unnatural, an unusual fear of radiation because of the nuclear bomb. But what people don't realize is that radiation is everywhere. It's natural. It comes from the sun, from the dirt, from the air. You eat it in your food. It's in your body constantly. Everything is radioactive. And, you know, during the evolution of our species on this planet, you know, a few million years ago, 100 million years ago, the, the radiation levels on this planet were, you know, 50% higher, you know, and so all of life evolved in a heavy sea of radiation, you know, from, from everywhere. Yeah. Our bodies are conditioned to respond to it and repair the damage that happens at the molecular and the cellular level, and, uh, you know, the, the dose that you get is, uh, is uh, from nature. Now, so the question is now, well, if I want to get a little more, how much is safe, right? That's the big question. So, but the debate, I mean, given this whole concept of green energy and this whole political topic of, you know, it seems like nuclear is such an easy way to power the world. And, but it's because of this fear, I think, that you've uh, alluded to. I mean, where are, we, fear. I, it, where are we in this? Are there even actually, there's parts of the world that are building reactors now. Yeah, right? I... I just, I, I don't know exactly what's going on. There's 450 reactors operating in the world, about 80 of them are in U.S., 90 or so in North America. Uh, building is occurring in Asia, the Middle East, uh, India, and China. Uh, Europe, maybe a couple, you know, in, in Britain's trying to build a big one, you know, but they're finishing up two in, in Augusta, Georgia. But the, uh, the build thing has really slowed down because of, uh, well, Chernobyl, or Three Mile Island uh, put an unnatural fear, an irrational fear into everybody. Uh, nothing happened. I mean, radioactive-wise, nobody got hurt. That's know, what I'm trying to remember. We melted a reactor. The containment performed exactly as it was designed. You know, we had a radioactive release that was below limits, similar to normal operating conditions. And uh, nobody got overexposed. You know, we were right in the middle of that one. And that's that. You know, but the political problem, the communications problem, the uh, the whole management of that fiasco, sent everybody into a very negative uh, attitude toward nuclear power. And then uh, Chernobyl, you know, put another nail in the coffin. People just couldn't believe that there was that much damage. The Russians had a pretty crummy design, pretty cheap, as you might imagine, and the, <laughs> the, the way they operated it was insane. I mean, they had no concern for safety whatsoever. Production ruled the day, and that's why it blew up. So, you know, that, that nuclear power can be used really safely. Look at our record. Look at the Navy record. If we build all our reactors like the nuclear Navy, uh, you know, it wouldn't be any problem. So, uh, of the available options to power the states or the, the world for that matter. I mean, this is a, probably the most viable in my opinion, but um, do you feel like there's any 
movement towards accepting this or building new reactors or getting you know, plants, coal plants offline. I know there's, you know, the Biden administration's had this uh, big move towards green, clean energy, which is, you know, still coming from some sort of power production facility anyways, but is it just officially never going to happen? That's not going to be a main source of power, in the, in, at least in the states. I, you know, the policy is that nuclear will be a, a part of the energy mix, right? They're not going to, you know, support it and develop it as much as they did back in the 70s and 80s, but uh, it'll always be there. Cost effectively, uh, you know, if you look at it from a long-term perspective, it is the most rational way to produce electricity. We can run these plants for 80 to 100 years nowadays. They're good, yeah. So whether people care about that, I don't know. They seem to ignore those, those facts and go more with their emotional reaction toward nuclear. I lived in D.C. for 15 years prior to coming back to Charleston, Daniel Island, and I mean, I understood enough. I've been out for 12 now, so I'm not as... Not as uh, attuned to the political scene as I was, but it, it was it was minute to minute subject matter at the time, you know, which is probably still where it is today. It's probably in second to second subject matter now. But I never really I never really remember anybody even this subject even coming up. Um and I just feel like uh it's such an easy solution. It's almost like sometimes I do contact my local representatives. They're like, why don't you get behind these things? You know, and they just you, you get about an hour of time and then they move on to the next subject matter. But do you have any involvement with you know, policy now in the states? Or no, 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 no. You know, I, I left 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, the last reactor I built was uh, at Diablo Canyon. And now they want to turn it off. And then they said, oh, wait a minute, hold it. Don't turn it off yet. <laughs> that was a beautiful plant. My God, it's magnificent. It could run for another 50 years. So what is the state of, I mean, give me, we talked about this the other day briefly over coffee. Um, the state of, What's being done and produced in the United States right now? I mean, that you can speak about. Cause... Well, we have an active naval reactor program, so we're manufacturing the fuel and the reactors for those new submarines and, and surface ships that use nuclear reactors for power. Nuclear propulsion in the Navy is, uh, you know, developed by Admiral Rickover and the atomic energy guys, is extremely safe and very compact. You know, that serves as an example for a new generation of small modular reactors, you know, in the 100 megawatt range instead of the 1,000 megawatt range. 100 megawatts would do what? Like, what would that power as, a, as far as a city or a block? I don't know if that translates to I don't know. I use about a kilowatt. So, okay. you know, 1,000 volts, I guess. But you build them in six packs or eight packs. You nest them in a, in a large power production facility. You take an old coal-fired coal power plant or gas-fired power plant. It's got all the transmission lines and all the transformers and breakers sitting right there. You can just plug in modular reactors. Manufactured off-site, installed inside the containment area and the safety area at the transmission tower. So those types of reactors, we have a lot of experience with small reactors. And uh, they, would, they would be able to, uh, you know, competitively uh, <clears throat> compete with green energy over the long haul, you know, over the life cycle of those things. But That's the next thing. There's nothing in current policy or this Inflation Reduction Act that I know is power, you know, we're doing a lot of powering of, you know, uh, there's a lot of money to for semiconductors in there and also for green energy and car production, but there was nothing in that package that was promoting this type of... That's right. Nuclear is also <clears throat> ran 
you know. It's, sorry, nuclear is an also <coughs> ran in the government's eye. You know, the Department of Energy has been, you know, cut back. They're basically a, a cleanup organization and a weapons production organization. That's all they do. They don't develop any new power things. They're going to try and demonstrate the small modular reactor uh, concept at the Idaho National Laboratory under a project that's being developed by New Scale, ticker SMR. You know, they're, they're taking the risk. They've developed the technology. They've got it licensed by the NRC. They've got the land deal and the transmission deal. They've signed up customers for the power, and they're ready to go. So keep an eye on that one. We'll see how it goes. Mm. Um, walk me through. So you you started your career where, and where'd you end up? Because eventually you had your own operations and consulting, I saw. I got into the nuclear business washing test tubes in a DNA research lab in Colorado State, <laughs> nice. working for the NASA guys trying to figure out if our astronauts could go to Mars and back without getting their brains fried from you know, <laughs> the radiation, space radiation outside our magnetosphere, right? So to do that, this is kind of fun, we used a, a cyclotron or a babytron and we spun up high energy particles like an oxygen nuclei or an iron nuclei, representing the kind of heavy radiation that's in deep space. And we irradiate brain tissue that we obtained from rabbits. We, oh, use, wow. we use their eyes, we use their uh, retinas. Easy to get at and easy to handle. And then we'd uh, analyze the DNA fragments inside those uh, central nervous system cells to see, A, how much damage was done by these big particles. You know, it's like a hot poker going through a steak at the molecular level. How much damage was caused to the DNA, and more importantly, how quickly did the DNA repair itself, you know, after the irradiation? So huh. we got data on all that stuff for years. And I really enjoyed, you know, taking rabbit retinas out of their heads, but that was <laughs> a little messy. So a job came up picking up environmental samples, driving around east northeastern Colorado in a pickup truck, collecting samples from 13 dairies and all the air samples and stuff. So we monitored the air and water around the new reactor they were building at Fort St. Vrain. It was a high temperature gas reactor, 300 megawatt demonstration plant built by General Atomics. New technology for us using helium as a coolant and a thorium oxide fuel. Very interesting design. So we learned a lot about that as they were building it. I got to pick up the samples. Love getting the beef samples from the nearby Angus Ranch every quarter. <laughs> I was a popular guy at the barbecue out behind the lab, I'll tell wow. you. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we'd watch Chinese fallout from their atmospheric test, you know, roll over the Rockies in the jet stream and settle down in Fort Collins, collecting all the tritium and fallout samples was kind of fun. And so, uh, meanwhile, I sat in on the courses and learned how to be a health physicist, talked to group of faculty members into giving me a master's degree and uh, got a great job at the uh, lar world's largest atom smasher at that time at Batavia, Illinois, right outside my hometown, uh, Fermilab oh, yeah. was just coming online. Yeah. The Tavatron, it was a 4.25 circumference atom smasher, a proton synchrotron powered by a big babatron and a LINAC on the front end. Our job was to make intense beams of neutrino radiation. And so as they were getting ready to 
start this thing up, they needed a safety officer for the neutrino department that would receive most of this beam. And so that was me. I got the job. Well, what, what year was this? Like what, 1976. Got it. And... Uh, the department head at the time, you know, took me up to my 12th floor office in this beautiful 16-story office building. And as we looked out over the ring and this long mile and a half series of, of experimental areas tangential to the ring, stretching out toward West Chicago, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, there's 150 guys out there that are going to play around with the most intense source of radiation man has ever made. It's your job to make sure nobody gets hurt. <laughs> Good. Let me know if you need any help. Good luck. <laughs> and so we're starting this thing up for the first time. We're going from 100 to 1,000, you know, in relative power. We're going up by a factor of 100 right off the bat, and then another factor of 100 after that. So as they crank the volume up on this beam, you know, things start to light up out there. You know, we start to shine it on pieces of metal to break up the, the particle, the proton beam, into a bunch of subatomic particles, mesons, electrons, neutrons, <coughs> and neutrinos. But to see the neutrinos, we've got to filter out all the hard radiation after that proton hits that steel. So they put a mile and a half of dirt and steel in the way. And at the end of that is a big detector filled with liquid hydrogen and they're, they're going to shoot the neutrinos at that big bubble of liquid hydrogen which has to be very cold and then take pictures of the debris that comes out of the neutrino proton interaction they leave little bubble tracks that's why they use liquid hydrogen the idea was actually postulated over a glass of beer <laughs> little bubbles represent, and that's exactly what they see and they have a pressure depressurizer piston on this thing and they depressurize it just as they dump the beam of neutrinos on it so the bubbles tend to form bigger and the magnets that are surrounding this thing well, they might as well be superconducting so they're really strong which means they're negative 70 you know degrees liquid nitrogen temperature they got these powered up magnets, and so these particles spin around in little circles, and their bubbles leave little trails. And so they analyzed the film from the aircraft cameras. They had six aircraft cameras. <clears throat> they were shooting 60 frames a second in 35 millimeter film, right? So we dumped the beam out over a one and a half second pulse. And during that time, while the neutrinos are interacting with the bubble, with the balloon of hydrogen, the, the cameras are going, taken zillions of pictures. Huh. Those pictures then go to the lab and, and a bunch of technicians sit there and with, with a hand-marked computer mouse map out the bubbles one by one and that was punched into cards and sent to the computer for analysis. That's how we did it oh my in gosh. the mid-70s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now they use solid-state compu computers. The guys are using huge solid-state, you know, four pi geometry computers computing all of that stuff in real time. No more punch cards. And and you and you where did you you retired about 10 years ago is that right? Yeah. 12 years. And where are you at that time? When you, what was your last gig? Oak Ridge. Yeah. Yeah, I had a couple companies. I started up three three companies actually. And we were doing engineering and consulting and health physics services and waste management and some you know decommissioning and cleanup work. Did you find the transition from government, you know, uh, academic work to private life 
easy? Was it a big deal? No challenging? I mean, it's a totally well, different mindset. The nuclear business is so, you know, half of it is government, roughly. So, you know, you can never get away with that. And the rules are consistent across government and commercial, so it's really kind of all the same. No, I mean, I remember the first time, though, they handed me a government contract. I was sitting up in Columbia working for the nuclear waste company, ChemNuke, ChemNuclear Systems, and uh, a guy, my boss came in and handed me a four-inch thick contract, double-sided, single-space, six-point type. He said, this is the Norfolk Naval Shipyard Rad Waste contract. You're in charge of it. <laughs> You better understand what this says because nobody else has read it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and a purchasing agent named Kitty up in Norfolk sat me down and walked me through what I had to do for her. And, and that was a beautiful thing. She was really cool. And That's we cool. wound up, I think the company still has that contract. Wow. No, I've just, I remember, I have so many clients that are in science or maybe in academics, and sometimes they, at the, you know, certain stage of their career, they want to change, you know, move into private practice or whatever, so. Well, I'll tell you the change that was most dramatic for me was uh, getting fired at the Atlanta Olympics in 96 on my cell phone. That uh, was a big change. I I'd worked for corporate America, you know, I worked for waste management for uh, 13 years. And then uh, left them to work for the number two guy, American Ecology Corporation. And after a four-year stint with them, they had, made, they had made, and we had made, some bad investments. And they started cutting costs, which wound up with me getting fired on my first day at the Olympics. And this that was, was fun. That was, that was 96. 96. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Where, where'd you go from there? Uh, consulting. So you started your own practice. I started my own consulting business. And about... Uh, my income level was back where it had to be about six months later because I just kept calling up my friends, you know, pushing the buttons and talking into the little holes. You know how that works. I've done and it. They, I still they do it, work. actually. Yeah. So, but that, you know, this, this podcast, which is called On the Rocks, is really partially about, you know, professional life and the accomplishments of people I know and respect, but right. also big things that you've overcome. Would you say that was one of your largest or hardest moments in your life? Well, definitely. Yeah, I've had I've had experiences like that too. So. I knew it was coming. You know, it, it, you're sitting on the edge of the a cliff, and you know somebody's going to come push you off, and you know there's no way out, and you just don't know what to do. And so, you know, I kept thinking, hey, it'll work out. It'll work out. It'll work out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've I said up, that before. After, after he fired me, I was sitting at the top of the bleachers there down at the Olympics. I looked down at my wife, who had just started. Uh, getting her real estate license, you know, she was an expense. And my two daughters who were getting ready to go to college, we were close. And I thought, you know, you got about two hundred thousand in your retirement account and about a negative twenty thousand dollar credit card bill. Oh man! And no income. I, you're screwed. <laughs> what are you going to do? And I stood right there before I did anything else. I pushed the buttons and I talked into the little holes. I called the most influential guy I knew in the industry, and I said, well. Gardner Consulting is open for business. I need some work. What do you got? There you go. He goes, really? He, uh, he had tried to hire me twice. He was the head of the nuclear Navy fuel company. And I declined twice. So I said, this is your chance, man. I'm available. <laughs> Three times a winner, you know. He goes, yeah, we'll work something out. He, go, he goes, who else are you going to call? I said, well, I'm going to call Jerry, you know, the guy that hired me. He goes, hang on, he's right here. You oh, know? <laughs> it was great. It worked out okay. It yeah. worked out all right. In fact, it was a blessing. 
When I was starting, my, Warren Capital, when I started, I was at Morgan Stanley from 1997 to 05, and gosh, what I was a cold caller. I mean, I just right. got the phone, and I would call lawyers and lobbyists in D.C. Did I you mean, find that easy? No, I thought it was hard, but I, I <laughs> well, I, the, 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 I was just, a, I, was off, I was opposite of everybody else. It was kind of my philosophy. I knew that in the finance world, in the stock brokerage business at the time, 93% of the employees didn't make it after more than five years. That was the math. But the seven that remained did quite well. So I would just do the opposite of what everybody else did. If you all left at five, I'm there till nine. You yeah. know, I would, uh, yeah. I'd cold call, I'd get in at 6.30 and call before the secretaries arrived, you know, because right. you get business owners before their, their, their people were there. And I just built up a book and you learned how to sell. Uh, and so I made it past like the little hump and the, about, you need about a year or two to figure out if you're actually gonna have enough clients to pay for yourself. Um, and then when I got to year seven, six or seven, I was just like, I had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of clients and I just, there's no way I could talk to them all. There's just no way, you know, and that's why I was like, this is a bad formula. But the math was the payout, you know, if a client, you charge a client a percent to manage their money, something like that in general. Um, that's pretty much normal, whether it's Merrill Lynch or Warren Capital or whatever. Uh, at a big wirehouse, 65 to 70% of that 1% goes to the wirehouse. Mm-hmm. So you're getting 30. So you can just do the math on how many of those 1% clients you need to get to, you know, make yeah. the 200 grand, yeah. or whatever yeah. you need yeah. to pay the bills with. And so by the time I was 28, I was like, I've had, got 750 clients and I'm working 90 hours a week and I'm making, you know, a couple hundred bucks. But So when yeah. did, at what point did you realize you were going to get into that business? Well, well, how old were you? I was so I got a Schwab account when I was uh, in college. Yeah. That's how I got to trading stock. And so my folks gave me five grand when I went off to college Charleston here. Yep. Child. I never even been to Charleston. I came here and just liked the city. And I, I just got into the school and I said, I'm going. And I, I did a couple trades in college. I was going to be a lawyer. I took the LSAT and was on my way. And I, I think like the last semester of my um, senior year, I bought a stock at three bucks because I read an article in the Wall Street Journal. The next day it was 18. And I was like, wow, I just made this, this is like a cool <laughs> gig, I'm into this. So I, I said, I'm going to take some time on the LSAT, and then, uh, but in 1997, you know, they weren't hiring kids from College of Charleston to be at Wall Street, so I had to go work at a, you know, chop shop, basically, just a cold call cowboy, and, yeah. and then I uh, got going. But in 08, or in 05, when I started my firm, I had the same thing, I was, I, I was like, I did the math, and I was like, I really only need about six grand a month to live. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's just me and no kids. It was. Yeah. I was like, if I'm gonna do it now, and so I, I remember Friday, I was gone. Saturday morning, I was already had like ten clients signed up, and I was like, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good to go. You know, so uh, those inflection points in life are kind of defined character. That's why I bring it up. So. Yeah. And that's interesting that you were able to take that motion, that notion at that time, and turn it into productivity. So well, I remember as a young man, one holiday season, we were over at the big Christmas party at uh, one of the neighbors' house down in Columbus, Indiana. And standing in front of me were four Cummins Diesel senior executives with drinks in their hand. You know, the chief counsel, the head sales and marketing guy. You know, my dad, chief of material production, and the head of engineering and they were all standing there looking at me and talking talking about the future. And, and one of them looked down and said, well, Bill, what do you think this guy should be doing? And the head of marketing, Marion Dietrich, said, I think he should learn a technical still, skill before he gets into sales. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, aha, I'm going to listen to this guy. 
he seems pretty smart. He knew me pretty well, so I did. It sounds like, you know, uh, and I, I talk about this a lot in these conversations, you had some influences in your life through the nuclear world and so that actually had were, were important to you. You had some mentors of people that actually maybe took some time to educate you in, you know, in various aspects, like this gentleman you mentioned. Well, at Colorado State, I got a big break from a couple mentors. You know, the guy in the DNA lab, what, G. Ed Powers, who was a really great scientist, went on to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. He really gave me a big break, and you know Johnson, Jim Johnson, also the head of the, the head of the department was an excellent guy. And I met Max Zelli, who was yeah. a geneticist out of Iowa, Ames, and he had worked on the you know germ warfare projects during the early part of the, the war and stuff like that. He uh, he was the head of the department, and he took a liking. I, actually, that's kind of how I, I got into the graduate school as as. Transitioning from a laborer, you know, a tech to a student, um, Friday afternoons after payday found me down at the catacombs bar in Fort Collins, with a dry martini in my hand, and uh, Max Zelli usually was there as well. So we kind of became Friday afternoon club buddies with martinis. He had a a large number of diplomas on his wall in his office, at, in, the, in the in the department head's office there. They were very fancy, but the most, the, the fanciest one. I asked him. I said, Max, of all these diplomas and awards, which one is the is the, are you most proudest of? He says this one, and it was the biggest one, and it said something like, heretofore among all these men present, be known that on this day in Clancy's Bar in Midtown Manhattan was the creation of the perfect martini and the isolation of the vermouth molecule heretofore certified by us and stamped and signed by everybody. And he said, that one. The isolation of the vermouth molecule. We did it. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Well, it is a funny thing that you got to combine, you know, personal, you know, contacts and personal nature with just an intellect. That did it. Yeah. That um, worked a little bit too. Do you guys, do you feel like there was, a, did you have people like, I think I think of it in golf since I play so much competitive golf where I, I run into people and like, okay, that guy's better. Um, did y'all, was there like a hierarchy of intelligence? Were you ever with a few people in science, you're like, this guy's, or this lady is got, uh, is at a different level of well, intellect or operating capability? At, at Fermilab, yeah, for sure. Uh, I saw a little bit of that at Colorado State. There was a big weather guy, West up at the Foothills campus that was developing big models that are now used, you know, he was, the Colorado State hurricane forecast is the one that was, you know, used for decades. And that guy was pretty impressive. He, he gave a pretty good speech. But at Fermilab, you know, I met people who were doing things that we had never done before. You know, using power to create subatomic particles in a way that in, it had never even been tried before. Those guys were, well, uh, the first week I got to have lunch with Robert Wilson. He was a scientist on the Manhattan Project, and he told a story about his participation in the Trinity test at, at one of the forward observation posts with a sergeant, a private, a walkie-talkie, and a Geiger counter, and he was supposed to make observations. And he, he was sitting right next to me. He said, when the bomb went off, he said, the Geiger counter went off scale, the walkie-talkie stopped working, and the shockwave came rolled over us, and I saw the cloud approaching. And I said, let's get out. Let's get in that Jeep and get out of here. And the sergeant said, no way. We're supposed to stay here and make observations, sir. And Wilson said, I'm leaving. And so they hopped in the Jeep. He, uh, he was an interesting character. 
Well, he had developed a lot of the fundamental research stuff on the Manhattan Project with uh, Lawrence and those guys. So that was interesting talking to him. Leon Letterman was an experimenter at that time. He went on to win the Nobel Prize and, and became director of Fermilab. But when he was under my watch, he was fooling around with a heavy-duty pion beam under, you know, next to the neutrino section and uh, violated safety procedures three times. So we had a public ceremony. We hung him in the main lobby at lunchtime, suspended him from the laboratory for a month. Ooh. That was big, you know, and I, I pushed the button on that one. Everybody at the lab supported me. He was, you know, clearly risking, you know, some serious damage if he, if he had been caught, you know, with the proton or the, the pion beam on his body somewhere. Yeah. But, uh, I went back after, you know, leaving the lab, came back, went back about 10 years later just to see how things were going, and I bumped into him, and he took me aside. He said, Listen, I wanted to thank you for this time. <laughs> I hated your guts for so long. <laughs> But now that I'm the director of the lab, I realize what these kids are doing out there is really dangerous. <laughs> I said, no kidding, man. you got to quit fooling around like that. that <laughs> he funny. patted me on the back and said, thanks. <laughs> now, and so, and then, when did you, how did you come across Daniel Island? And how long, what have you been here, about a decade now? Oh, we were in Columbia. We lived in Irmo for years and then uh, Wildwood. And we used to come down here all the time on vacations. And the first time I saw Daniel Island was coming back from a trip to Wild Dunes, probably, and it was in a double-wide trailer with a model of the whole island under a plexiglass cover, and these salespeople, you know, with their shiny brochures talking about building a city in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> there wasn't even a highway through here, you know, I thought, these guys are nuts. That's the first time I heard about it. Yeah. It's an interesting concoction of people, though, here. After I, mean, I, after I got to retirement time, we went up and down the East Coast, and bingo, this was clearly head and shoulders. Yeah, it's been a, it's just, I've run into people from all walks of life here, which is interesting. And you have your own town, so it, um, it is, uh, mm -hmm. it's a unique, and these guys like you, you know, it's funny how golf will also bring people from all crazy walks of life together. So, and you, you're, you're, the golf is good. you're now, would you say you're now, your main gig is woodworking? Where are you now in the woodworking? Because I know you like to build things. My, my main gig is Ricky, my wife. Well, that, that's where I was headed next. Yeah, but. that's a really good deal for me. Woodworking just keeps me out of trouble, I guess. I've helped a lot of kids, you know, guys between engagements who needed a job or something to do, you know, bring them into the shop, get them, get them going. And I've done a lot of work for the club here and there. You know, they've been very gracious and let me build some stuff for them. And, uh, you know, had a lot of fun doing it. Yeah, woodworking is great. I'm doing a piano now. That's pretty crazy. But, uh, yeah. Have you just been, were you were you taught as a kid? Dad always had a wood shop in the basement, in the garage. <laughs> His grandfather, my German grandfather, had all kinds of stuff. They built a log cabin up in Michigan when I was a little baby by hand, you know. So, yeah, woodworking and, you know, machining stuff, always kind of been in the way. Well, there's a, all walks of life at the club and in the Daniel Island in general and even in Charleston, but you, you cover a lot of gambits here, so, uh, you know, we appreciate you, you raising the intellect of the club membership uh, <laughs> by a large margin. Well, I got a call about the uh, new cell towers. Everybody said the radiation levels, you know, are going to be irradiating our babies in the park. And I, boy, I got a lot of calls about that one. Oh, yeah. really? Oh, yeah. I went out and got my microwave meter tuned up and everything and made some measurements and checked everything out so yeah it's fine yeah if you get a if you get an atomic explosion or a radiation leak anywhere give me a call i got a few dagger counters <laughs> 
you know, no problem. Easy to measure. <laughs> well, it's been fun knowing you the last several years, Fred, and you've been yeah. good to me. And uh, and congratulations on you guys' recent, not too recent, but recent yeah, marriage. Um, and it's just exciting to see you guys doing so well. And I appreciate everything you you know you you've done for the club and involvement here in the city and the stuff you do for. Uh, you came to our event the other night, so. Uh, you know, um, maybe I'll maybe I'll come over to the shop one day and do a little woodworking. Sure, with you, so. <laughs> that'd be great. I, I appreciate you being with us. All right, thanks, Joe. <laughs>